I was blind and I could not see the spirit of God in Hadgar. And again, like my pastor, I could not see the spirit of God in those who I considered to be outsiders. I needed to wake up. I needed to be saved from my blindness. I was lost. Welcome to the Desert Voices podcast, spiritual conversations about thriving in the desert. I'm Holland Fields. And I'm Shalene Kendrick. We spark curiosity and boldly explore spirituality to contribute to human flourishing. Let's get curious. Let's get bold. All right, Holland, we're going to get into this. I am afraid of this episode. Yeah. I think I'm most afraid of this episode than any other episodes we've done in this season. Yeah, I think because it gets really raw and real for you. Yeah, and And it has the potential to seriously blow up relationships in my life and community that I have. And, you know, I'm in this precarious place where I have to make a choice to stay silent, to play along and to go along to get along or... Do I truly challenge the system in real and raw ways? And, and do I truly go up against commonly held doctrine, knowing that it might blow some things up in my life? Yeah. And I think our conversations around this episode specifically, I remember I keep asking you, like, are you sure like this is putting a lot of your stuff out there? Do you want to do that? And what I really respect and honor in you, Shalene, is that you are not willing to stay silent because of justice issues. <laughs> And for the liberation yeah. Um, yeah. of our spirituality. And so, yeah, I'm grateful that you're willing to be really bold in this. And we thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. But we want to frame this episode from a conversation that we heard through Tony and Bart Campolo. And they wrote a book together called Why I Left, Why I Stayed. And Bart is the son of Tony, <laughs> who's this evangelical. <laughs> Pastor, been around forever. I listened to one of his podcasts with Shane Claiborne. He's awesome. And his son, Bart, is a humanist chaplain. And the definition of a humanist is they believe that human needs and values are more important than religious beliefs or the needs and desires of humans. And an example of a humanist is the belief that the person creates their own set of ethics. Right. And I, yeah. And, you know, in a lot of ways, I love humanists. Some of these humanist authors and scholars have taught me more about incarnation that I I've never learned from Christians. And so quite honestly, like, oh my gosh, Jeff Brown and Bart Campolo, these are people you're going to want to listen to and to read. You don't, I don't agree with everything they say, but I don't agree with anyone entirely. (laughs) I don't even agree with myself. (laughs) And so entirely. And so I'm telling you that Humanism, this idea of placing human needs and values is more important than religious beliefs. I think in that way, I am a humanist Mm -hmm. while also I'm deeply anchored to Jesus, but I'm not all that attached to the religiosity of Christianity. And so we're going to start with this. I read this part of the book that just, it it stopped me in my tracks, quite honestly. And, And Bart wrote this. He writes, the beginning with my parents, that Thanksgiving night in Cincinnati, and for some time afterward, I would often make the mistake of listing all of my problems with Christianity first, which always put my believing counterparts on the defensive. I didn't actually want to spoil anyone else's faith, but starting off by attacking the veracity of the Bible, the morality of the cross, and the historical record of the church, church sure made it seem that way. Eventually, however, I learned just to cut to the chase. And Bart goes on to say that for reasons beyond my control, I simply stopped believing in God. The rest are just details. Then he writes this, and this is the part, Holland, that stopped me in my tracks that I I remember calling you right after. He wrote, it would be different, of course, if I had switched from Protestant to Catholic or Greek Orthodox or jumped all the way over to Judaism, Islam, or even further to Hinduism, Mormonism, Scientology, or any number of other supernatural religions. In any of those cases, The particulars of my theology, and especially my understanding of scriptural authority, would be much more relevant to the conversation. In my case, meaning in Bart's case, however, all that really matters is that over the many years, his ability to believe in any kind of supernatural reality gradually faded away. And I I think I'm going to stop there because for 
for Holland and I, we are anchored to Jesus. And unlike Bart, we haven't departed Christ. We haven't walked away from Jesus. And we're not, not that I, I judge Bart for that. I have plenty of friends who have walked away from Jesus, or I should say plenty of friends that walked away from the Christian religion. But for me, I, I love the Judeo-Christian narrative. It's deeply meaningful to my life. The historical Jesus and Christ, they bring me hope and comfort and, and give me deeper understandings of the world and how it works. And I have no intention of walking away. And for all of you listening, if Holland or I ever walk away or became no longer anchored in Jesus, we'll, we'll take you on that journey with us. We're not going to surprise you. But Bart says this, and I really love his advice here. He says, Christians inevitably face the same big questions from those who remain faithful. Or in our case, as Holland and I have departed conservatism and we've departed evangelicalism, we get these questions from our friends and family. It's what happened? What went wrong? Why does Christianity no longer make sense to you? Bart's advice is this. Bart says, my advice is always the same. Don't make a theological case. Tell them your story. Mm -hmm. And so today, this is storytelling day that I am going to make a theological case. So I'm going to go against Bart's case here, <laughs> advice here. But that's because I deeply love theology. And in a yeah. lot of ways, I, it, it matters to me. And so this episode is me telling my story. Mm-hmm. And I can no longer ascribe to the fundamental and conservative paradigm of both my youth and that which I taught in early adulthood. And there's stories to that. There's a reason that that has happened and why my faith has shifted. Yeah. And we hope to challenge our thinking. We really want to challenge the toxic paradigms that we live in, that we're in conflict with. And, and we hope to inspire critical thinking and engagement with these commonly understood doctrines. And we, we don't, Shalene and I really do not want to just live in an echo chamber. We really do want to learn to dialogue and to listen. And so we hope that this conversation includes all of that. Yeah. And we invite you to join the dialogue with us. Call us, direct message us. Both Holland and I are spiritual directors, life coaches. And and this is what I do for a living is deconstruct and reconstruct theology and walk with people on their spiritual journey. And so come, if, if this resonates with you, call me, let's have a conversation. Let's have sessions together. Let's talk about this. And we want to say on the front end that Holland and I, we are challenging these ideologies, these paradigms, and we are telling you all in the most clear and direct way that we know how that some of these ideologies that both Holland and I grew up with and both personally held and preached as holy are deeply hurtful yeah. and in ways psychologically damaging. And that is why we have walked away. And we truly believe that Jesus has come to liberate and liberation theology has shifted me and shaped me and, and helped me to truly see a lot of the ways that I was worshiping a Eurocentric white Jesus and why that wasn't going to work in this 21st century context. So again, this is about storytelling. And I also want to preface it on the front and I'm going to be telling stories about my pastor. I want every one of you to know I love my pastor with all of my heart. And although I have left that church, I'm still close with my pastor. And if you're if you're wanting to know more about this conversation, I'm I'm willing to enter into that. But I'm I'm going to constantly to refer to my pastor and I'm going to do the best I can not to call out names or institutions because really what I'm going up against is a paradigm and my pastor is an archetype for the paradigm. So this really is less about my pastor. It's less about your pastor and it's more about the construct of Christianity that we are practicing in America today. And that's what I'm calling into question. I'm not calling my pastor's love for me or my family into question and I'm not even calling his character into question. But I am going to flat out challenge these ideologies that are deeply embedded in the systems that my pastor perpetuates. Yeah. And I want to say a few things. I love when Bart says, my faith believing counterparts, <laughs> that we are yeah. connected oh, that's to good, Holland. These, this pastor figure, this archetype, right? And also, mm-hmm. I think literarily to bring this conversation <laughs> with your pastor it's actually been many conversations with many pastor figures in our life. And yeah. so the it's just been way too common and way too many conversations that <laughs> we're bringing it all together in one yeah. place here. We're bringing these conversations out from behind closed doors and into the light. And we're 
damn, we're doing the best we know how to honor and love the people that we are in relationships with and that are our counterparts. And so again, Holland and I are committed pluralists, which means we greatly value difference and agreeing to disagree. But there are some things that we just need to flat call out as damaging. And that's what this episode is about. And so I do not want the world to look like me. God help us if the whole world was a bunch of Shalene Kendricks. I wouldn't even want to live in that world. Um, so I am a big fan of agree to disagree agreeably, but Holland and I are huge fans of critically thinking. Don't check your brain at the door when you walk into church. And we're gonna we're gonna move from there. Holland, you want to talk quickly about rituals of awakening. We're gonna talk about conversion in this episode, and we wanna just preface that at the beginning. Totally. I think. There are these times that I can think about in my life where I have had these rituals of awakening. And a few are like when I got baptized, I remember when I stood up at a young life camp and I had a say so and said that I accepted Jesus. And those were profound in my life. They were transformational. They were moments in my history where I could look back and see a clear shift in my life. And they were good. Mm -hmm. And so we are going to talk about these rituals and we want to honor them. And we want to know that like they, they can be good in your life. Right. And they're, they're really a metaphor of awakening, right. Of, of stepping into a, a, just a different chapter of your life. Right. So anyways, in episode five, we, in the, am I crazy? (laughs) We talked about this metaphor of the Jenga game, right? And that a lot of times, and Laura Beth gave us this, this analogy, and it's beautiful imagery that has really helped us (laughs) through all of this deconstructing and processing. And think about the Jenga tower when it's originally built, it's all stacked nice and pretty. It's all of our doctrines and ideologies just in their certain beautiful tower. (laughs) And all of a sudden we start to pull out one block and we examine it. We critically think we ask questions, we put it on top. And then we do that with another one. And we start to just, our curiosity is (laughs) sparked, right? And we begin to explore these foundational doctrines. And we realize (laughs) that all of a sudden, oh no, the Jenga tower falls down, right? Right. Like you pull out enough blocks and the construct of hierarchical, patriarchal, toxic power, which is conservative fundamental Christianity, is going to fall. And I know that those are fighting words and I'm trying to stay connected to my nature of empathy and compassion. But I am telling you that so much of what we believe to be holy is laced with patriarchy, misogyny, racism, homophobia insider outsider mentality. There's so many of these things. And so you start pulling out enough of these blocks and Holland and I, I know I pulled out this block of belonging and the whole tower fell. Yeah. Like truly the whole tower fell. So today we're going to get into these doctrines of belonging. Okay. We're talking about belonging in the family of God. And what does that mean? And so today we're going to zero in on some esoteric theologies, some esoteric doctrines. That word esoteric literally just means intended for or likely to be understood by only a small number of people with a specialized knowledge or interest. Hmm. And so basically it's a limited amount of pastors and theologians that understand this doctrine. And Holland and I want to shed light on what these mean. That word theology essentially means faith seeking understanding. Thank you, St. Anselm for that. (laughs) Sadly, over the last 2000 years, starting with Jesus's own disciples, so much sophistication and nuance gets in the way. And so theology really is the study of what is the nature of God. And part of what Holland and I hope to do is strip away the nuance and the sophistication and the linguistic brilliance that we have accumulated over time. Yeah. And it's going to, it's going to get real. Yeah. I just read a book by Christina Cleveland called Christ, Our Black Mother Speaks and talks about how we have grown up in this environment that wants a tidy faith. It wants a really mm. clean, tight, held together Jenga block where yeah. Christ really wants an authentic faith that can be messy. And that actually is us learning how to just play a game of Jenga together and find joy in it falling down. So, and then rebuild it together in community. Yeah, that we would rebuild it, it for sure. Yeah. I love so that. So as I share this story, I want you all to hear that this is not a universal lens. This is my experience. And mm-hmm. even when I told my own siblings about this experience and encounter with my pastor, they were not nearly as rattled as I were. In fact, they were like, yeah, so what? We know that. We don't care. 
And and so I kept thinking like, why is it that I care? And I honestly think maybe so much of why I care is because I am an Enneagram eight. And I, I really do care about oppressive issues. I care about power dynamics. I care about the voice of the voiceless. I care about not staying silent. And so you're, I, I don't know, I just care. And so we're going to start deconstructing the meaning of belonging in the family of God. Before we start, Holland, do you want to read these statements of faith that we pulled from both the Evangelical National Association and from the mega church that I grew up in here in Arizona? So here are some of the statements of faith from the National Association of Evangelicals and the Evangelical Mega Church that Shaleen and I grew up in. And also, <laughs> we preached and we taught these statements of faith for years. So we're not victims here. Yeah, we, these are our statements of faith that Holland and I upheld these. Yeah, and so and we taught for years, them. <laughs> taught them to, for years, we preached out of this yeah. paradigm. And so this is less, maybe even this is less about a story about my pastor and more about my previous self and my now self. <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> and they, they say, we believe that all who received by faith, the Lord Jesus Christ are born of the Holy Spirit and thereby become children of God, a relationship in which they are internally secure. We believe in the resurrection of both the saved and the lost, that they are saved unto the resurrection of life and that, and they that are lost into the resurrection of the damnation the everlasting conscious punishment of the lost along with Satan and other fallen angels. Woo. Damn, that's a mouthful. <laughs> Satan. Yeah. So wow. this is about belonging. This is about who belongs in the family of God, who's in and who's out. And essentially, if you say the sinner's prayer and you get baptized, you believe in the Christian religion as we have it constructed at the moment, you belong to the family of God. You suddenly have the Holy Spirit, which you did not have before, and you become a child of God. Mm. Yeah. And Holland, <laughs> if you do not say the prayer. Well, then you're damned to hell with Satan and his fallen angels. <laughs> right. Scary. Right. So if you do not say the sinner's prayer, if you do not get baptized, if you do not believe the Christian doctrine, then you are of the lost. And mm. God thinks that you deserve to burn in hell in eternal conscious torment. And by eternal, I mean for all eternity. So what we're doing here is now practical theology. What Holland and I are really curious about is how does this doctrine of belonging practically apply to people? So we're going to humanize this doctrine. Who belongs in the family of God? Who is a child of God and who is not? I was at an Easter dinner party and I was there with my pastor and with my family and the adults were laid back, sitting back, drinking wine after dinner, and the kids had run off. They were playing. And I was in the, you know, I was in the height of my deconstruction phase. And if I just want to own this part at the beginning, I, I have to tell you, I was pretty aggressive. And so I, I need to take and want to take responsibility for that. So I'm sitting back and drinking wine with my pastor and my husband and my family. And I look at my pastor and by the way, this is a man who I love and who I trust. He's a senior pastor. Like I say, one of the senior pastors at the mega church I grew up in, in Arizona. And also I'm going to weave in conversations from other evangelical father figures. And so when I say my pastor, I'm talking now of an archetype. And again, I grew up in a predominantly white, conservative, right-wing evangelical church and theology comes up because theology always comes up with me. And I have to say flat out, choosing holiday dinners as a time to talk about theology, that's a bad idea. <laughs> I just want you all to know. Like, I, I would just go ahead and encourage you to, you know, choose wisely. And holiday dinners are maybe not the time for that. But my, I, I chose not wisely this time. And I look at my pastor and he and I are both very passionate about theology. We are passionate about what we think when we think about God. And I'd been on the deconstruction journey, like I said. And so I look at him and I go, hey, you know what? I really do want to talk about this. I want to talk about who has the spirit of God. And he gives me the typical fundamental Christian answer. And he says, anyone who's accepted Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior has the spirit of God and becomes a child of God. And I start to push back. And so I say, okay, so whoever has said the sinner's prayer or been baptized has the spirit of God. They belong in God's family. Is that right? Yes, that's right. That's what the Bible says. Hmm. So I have four kids, my two older boys, when I was in the height of my evangelical days and on Young Life staff, my two boys said the sinner's prayer because I will be damned <laughs> if those boys are going to burn for all eternity. And you know what? I don't know. I hope it was authentic for them. And I just, anyway, my boys said the prayer. 
but I have two girls, right? And so I have now shifted in my faith and I, I'm no longer ascribed to that paradigm. And so I looked at my pastor and I said, okay, my two boys have said the sinner's prayer. So what does it mean for my eight-year-old daughter, Layla, at the time? You see, my daughter, Layla, has not said the sinner's prayer. She's not been baptized. And according to your doctrine, your statement of faith, my daughter does not have the spirit of God. And he looks at me and he starts to get a little like, what are you doing? And I'm like, well, no, we're talking. We, we both do this for a living, right? We're pastors. We talk about theology. So I want to humanize this doctrine of belonging. I want to know, do you see the spirit of God in my child? And he responds with this doctrinal sophistication and nuance. And he goes, well, you know, God loves all children. And of course, all children go to heaven. Well, until the age of accountability, which is when they become teenagers. And then they have to choose whether or not what they believe. And if they choose to ask Jesus in their heart, then yes, they become children of God. And I look at him and again, I go, no, 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 you're actually not answering me. I, I really want to be clear. Do you see the spirit of God in my daughter? And Holland, he avoids the question again. And he mm -hmm. starts to say again, you know, all, all humans are made in the image of God. And I think that's a really side note here that many Christians believe that all humans are made in the image of God, but we like, this is where that sophistication and nuance comes. We don't believe that humans have the spirit of God until they fulfill a condition of belief. So Christians, we love to say, I love to say, well, all humans are made in the image of God, but I would deny that human, the spirit of God, i.e. they would not be in the family of God. And so I look at my pastor again and I go, no, I'm, I'm actually done with the sophistication and nuance. I'm asking you straight up. You taught me that quote unquote, Orthodox Christianity believes that you cannot be saved without asking the spirit of God into your heart. And you cannot be in a relationship with God and you cannot be a child of God until you say the sinner's prayer, or get baptized or feel some kind of condition of belief. Layla has not done that. So I'm asking you, do you see the spirit of God in my child? I watch him, Holland. He physically hardened up and he looks me in the eyes and he says, no, no, I do not. And I look at him and I go, Layla, honey, come here. And I, I yell her name and I'm like, babe, sweetie, come here. Pastor has some good news to tell you. Oh, God. And I'm, I'm just, just for the record, I'm being a bitch at the moment. Like I, I'm not totally proud of my actions here. But I was pissed. In fact, I'm still pissed. Mm -hmm. And so I start yelling, Layla, come on down. Pastor has something. He has got good news. He wants to tell you. And he looks at me shocked, like horrified that I was calling Layla down. And I look at him and I go, what? Don't you want to share the gospel? Don't you want to share the good news with your parishioner? Don't you want to tell my beautiful child the good news of God? And he's like, Why, what are you doing? Like, what are you, Shalene? And I go, what? Don't you want to look my baby in the eye and tell her that you cannot see the spirit of God in her? Don't you want to look her sweet, precious eight-year-old face in the eye and tell her that God believes that she deserves to burn in hell for all eternity unless she says the magic prayer that you have to offer her? And I just, I lost it, Holland. I lost my mind. My husband who loves me was like, oh shit, this has gone south fast. and. He lovingly is like, Shaleen, we got to go like, honey, this is, this is not cool. Let's go. So he collects me, we, we leave and I, I'm fuming. I mean, I'm truly fuming because really for the first time I knew that this is what this Christian doctrine meant, but I have never gotten someone to actually say it to me before. Yeah. And I've never, I've been going to that church since I was a baby, Holland. I've yeah. never heard them preach that doctrine up front. And I, I just, I'm angry. And I actually get to be angry yeah. because when your senior pastor of a church says to you flat out that they cannot see the spirit of God in your child, you actually have a moral obligation to decide what you think about that. That's where critical thinking comes into play. And for me, it's when I realized, oh my gosh, this is what it means to place your doctrine as more important than human in front of you. Yeah. Like it was really clear that his doctrine was more important than the little girl standing in front of him. And this, this ideology, this paradigm, this doctrine that's up on these websites and thousands and thousands of people, by the way, sign their names as members agreeing to this doctrine. This effectively places my daughter on the outside, yeah. on the outside of God's family. What's crazier 
Is this crazy ass doctrine with all of its sophistication and nuance? Holland, it places all children on the outside of God's family. Mm. And here, here was the uh, come to Jesus moment for me. Once you do that, now you really have from the way I see it, you have two choices. Either there are no children in God's family until they say the sinner's prayer or all children across the world are in God's family until they become teenagers. And then God kicks them out of God's family until they fulfill a condition of belief to get back in. Yeah. That's just sounds psychotic. Schizophrenic. Yeah. Like Holland, I'm speechless. Like I don't, it's like, I knew that that's what that doctrine meant, Yeah, but it sounded so much better in these esoteric linguistically brilliant words where it didn't apply to my to my daughter's face. Yeah. And I think what we're saying now is these conversations that we're having behind closed doors, we're saying, Hey, if this is really good news and this is (laughs) so good that you'll get up and preach every Sunday, can you tell what you really believe to the eight-year-old girl in front of you? Or could you say this from the pulpit? And that's where I go, huh, there's some disconnection there that we really just want to bring in like I guess connection that we would, that what we believe we would say that it, right. we, it wouldn't be divided there. And I think for you and I, we have now come to this place of saying that we no longer believe that Jesus is kicking kids out and that kids don't belong, but that all of humankind belongs, right? That All, all of humankind is the family of God because yes. your only other choices are to not have any children in family of God. And what the hell kind of family has no children? Yeah, that's boring. Or you actually have to believe that God kicks all the teenagers out of God's family and makes them fulfill some kind of condition of belief to get back in. And by the way, Holland, you and I taught that in Young Life for years. Yeah. We would get up in front of hundreds and hundreds of adolescents and we would tell them that they did not belong to the family of God. Yeah. That they of course, were we did it. And separated. And that God was perfect and they were imperfect. And, and that there was grand, there was a Grand Canyon and oh. God was on one side and they were on the other, right? And the cross had to come down and they had to like cross over. Yeah. Oh, yeah. We, I taught that. We preached to adolescents. I had that they just dis- <laughs> PowerPoints of that. Yeah, I made a PowerPoint of that. I preached to adolescents for years that they deserved to burn in hell for all eternity, unless they said the magic prayer or unless they believed like me, Holland, teenagers, like think of what's going on in the adolescent mind as if they really need to hear that they don't belong in God's family and deserve to burn in hell for all eternity. I can't, I cannot wrap my mind around that. And I can't believe that I taught that for so long and I never questioned it. I never questioned it. I never really humanized these doctrines. Until you did. <laughs> Until I did. <laughs> and, then, and then I was like, oh, shit, this statement of faith that I just signed puts an eight-year-old girl yeah. on the outside of God's family. I needed to wake up. And I, I'm going to shift into telling another story because as much as I want to be pissed at my pastor, and quite honestly, I am. Obviously, you can hear the anger in my voice and it's there and I'm unapologetic about it. But I'm also... It's not just about my pastor. Like I said, this is me. Mm-hmm. I, I preached this message day in and day out for years. And I, I want to hold on to the wisdom of Maya Angelou. I, I did then what I knew how to do. Yeah. And now that I know better, I do better. Mm-hmm. And I went home and I was so angry about what my senior pastor had just said about not being able to see the spirit of God in a child. And I was just so focused on the speck in his eye, right? And the log in my eye st- started to become very clear. <laughs> start and throbbing a little. We start throbbing. Look at yeah. that. <laughs> look at that. There's a log in my own eye. And I feel like the beautiful spirit of God brought me a story. He brought me a story of another girl, like my daughter, yeah. another girl with beautiful brown skin, another girl who was on the outside. You see, the Spirit of God brought me the story of Hagar through the eyes of womanist theology, through the eyes of Dolores Williams, Renita Weems, Audre Lorde, Monica Coleman, Alice Walker. Black women taught me to see the story of a brown-skinned girl, 
a girl who was seen as property, a girl who was not considered to be a part of God's family. You see, she was a slave in the household of Abraham and Sarah, and a girl who was not seen by the dominant culture of her day. They taught me to see a girl who was used, abused, threatened, exiled, and left for dead at the hands of a lighter-skinned woman named Sarah. You see, Sarah was the heroine of my faith. And this was a come to Jesus moment when I started to read the story of Hagar through the eyes and perspective of black women. And Sarah, like myself and like my senior pastor, was blind. Sarah could not see the spirit of God in the girl before her eyes. Sarah valued what she knew about God. She valued her information about God, her doctrine above relationship and connection. It was an, it truly was an oh shit moment for me because I realized for far too long, I have been Sarah. And literally up until a few years ago, I too could not see the spirit of God in Hagar. In fact, I never once thought of Hagar's perspective past Hagar being a foil to highlight Sarah. Like, if that's not internalized white supremacy, shit, I don't know what is. <laughs> like, I truly have been taught to read this story and I chose to read the story of Sarah and Hagar through the eyes of my white culture, through the eyes of white Jesus, specifically through the eyes of Eurocentric, cisgendered, heterosexual men who have dominated theology for two millennia. See, I was not only taught to read this story, but I was actually taught that it was heretical for me to look at this and look at scripture from other perspectives. I was blind and I could not see the spirit of God in Hagar. And again, like my pastor, I could not see the spirit of God in those who I considered to be outsiders. I needed to wake up. I needed to be saved from my blindness. I was lost. And womanist theology found me. As I started listening to Malayan voices, it started to help wake me up out of my Eurocentric paradigm. And I was reading the book, uh, Reading the Bible from the Margins by Miguel de la Torre. Oh my gosh, you all, you need to get that book. You see, people outside the dominant culture taught me how to see, and it was not their job to do so. But women of color, as I followed women of color, as I shut my mouth and listen and learn from women of color, they teach me what it means to be whole. They teach me what salvation actually means. And here's why this matters. Because God sees Hagar. You see, in the story of Hagar, Yahweh actually speaks to Hagar, inviting Hagar to speak back to God. God says this to her. Yahweh says, where have you come from and where are you going? You see, Hagar was a young slave girl in the house of Abraham and Sarah. And God had made a promise to Abraham that he would have many, many, many children, that, they, that he would be the father of nations. But then Sarah wasn't getting pregnant. And so Sarah sent her slave girl to be raped by Abraham. Of course, the Bible doesn't say raped. It says he laid with her. But think about it. A 14-year-old girl who had no say over her body yeah. was sent into a tent so that she could fulfill the promise of God. This is rape, you all. And so this girl was raped by Abraham and then she gets pregnant and then Sarah gets jealous of her and so sends her out into the desert to die. And in the desert, the spirit of God promises Hagar that God will take care of her. Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament, the God of the New Testament, the God of the world promises Hagar that her descendants will be too numerous to count. Okay, this is fascinating. God gave this young girl the same promise that God gave Abram, that she was told she would have a son and that she would name him Ishmael. And then it says, for Yahweh has heard your cries of distress. And this is the next part that changed my, changed my world. Hagar named God. Hagar names God, El Roy. You are the God of seeing for on that day, God saw her, someone that Israel considered to be an outsider. Hagar, just so you're, everyone knows, she's the only one in the entire Hebrew Bible that gives God a name. There is unbelievable honor in that. 
And then she actually ends up having to go back to captivity, back to slavery, because what else could she do? She was literally dying and the child inside her was dying. And see, Monica Coleman taught me that Hagar had to make a way out of no way. And she goes back and her son Ishmael is born. And about that time, Sarah had become pregnant and her name goes from Sari to Sarah. She conceives and then history will herald Sarah's birth as a miracle. While for Hagar, it was a nightmare. Mm -hmm. So Sarah never claimed Ishmael as her son. And then it became a breaking point, actually, when the boys were playing and Sarah was overcome with venom and jealousy and wickedness. And she exiles Hagar and her son. So now we find Hagar in the wilderness once again alone. But this time she is dying with her infant son. She literally is on death's doorstep. And then God opens her eyes and she sees a well. She sees water, watering holes in the desert. She sees life. And God says to her, the boy shall be safe. And God makes good on his outsider. You see, God sees the outsider. Why did it take me so long to figure that out? My daughter's name is Layla. She has beautiful brown skin and it's an African name. Layla means dark beauty born at night. You know what happens at night? The stars come out and they shine and they shine and they shine. And those stars shine so that those who lost their way, that those like me can look up in the night sky and can navigate their way back home. Women of color taught me what it means to be fully human. They taught me how to see the outsider. And they've cut, I've seen so much white supremacy and baked into my own theology, my own consciousness, my culture. You all, I have sinned. I have missed the mark. I have failed to acknowledge the Holy Spirit of God and the outsider. And I didn't realize how truly psychologically damaging that was until this senior pastor was about to tell my eight-year-old girl that he couldn't see the Spirit of God in her. You all, imago Dei, it means the image of God. I have failed to see the full image of God, which includes the Spirit of God in all humankind. In the desert, There is a God that sees, and there are no outsiders. I think about the wisdom of Audre Lorde, and um, she writes this. She's a black queer woman, and she writes, I was going to die, if not sooner than later, whether or not I had ever spoken myself. My silences had not protected me. Your silence will not protect you. What are the words you do not have yet? What do you need to say? What are the tyrannies that you swallow day by day and attempt to make your own until you will sicken and die from them still in silence? Her words are haunting for me, right? I don't really have all the world, all the words. Like, I don't really know what I need to say in this stupid little podcast. (laughs) But I do know. That the tyrannies of an exclusive gospel is not something I will stay silent about anymore. That I cannot do. I cannot take it anymore. I cannot take, I cannot swallow the tyranny of an exclusivity in the name of Christ. And I'm not going to stay silent anymore about the conversations that I have behind closed doors. I will always protect people. And as a spiritual director, it's, it's my ethic to protect your story. Yeah. But when people are preachers and teachers and public theologians, then as a senior pastor, your theology is not private. It's actually public knowledge. And I don't need to protect you anymore from, from the tyranny of looking at a child and saying that you cannot see the spirit of God in them. And I wonder, right? Like what happens if these senior pastors get up in their pulpits and, and say to their congregations, Just so everyone's clear, none of your children have the spirit of God until they say this prayer. I've never heard that preached from a pulpit before. Have you? It's written on their websites in case you're wondering. But what's interesting, (laughs) I've I've never actually heard it humanized in that way. My silences hadn't protected me. In fact, they've eaten me alive and I'm not going to stay silent. And I'm looking, I don't know how to thread this needle, you all. I don't know how to call out these tyrannies while also. I don't know. I, I, I don't know how to do it. But I do know on that day when my senior pastor said, no, I cannot see the spirit of God in your child. My heart broke. 
I was also having coffee with my pastor and again, talking about the deconstruction process. And I said, why did you teach me that God's love is unconditional when literally you also taught me that God's love and to be in a relationship with God hinges on my fulfilling a condition of belief. And my senior pastor looked at me and he said, you know, perhaps that's where we went wrong. Perhaps we never should have called God's love unconditional. Where is my microphone in moments like that? (laughs) This person preaches to thousands upon thousands upon hundreds of thousands of people. And they have never once said, perhaps that's where we went wrong. Perhaps we never should have called God's love unconditional. But when being in a relationship with God hinges upon the condition of belief, make no mistake, friends. That is a condition that you have to fulfill to be in relationship with God. Oh, Shalene. I think in the spirit of repentance where we have shifted in our thinking and have come to to realize the white supremacist thinking we have, we want to, we want to go down this path of what does repentance mean, right? And Jesus has a call of repentance there. It is very clear. Repent. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Always. Yes. And so it, it really is this word translated metanoia best translated to think about our thinking. Like, isn't that amazing? That repentance Mm -hmm. isn't this fulfill this condition of belief to say this prayer. It's really, let's just start thinking about our thinking, right? It's, it's the Greek word meaning to change of the change of mind. Right. And yet the full meaning is somewhat more. It's, I know it's so repentance comes from the English word penance as in paying penance or punishment. Yeah. But in the Greek, it's so much more beautiful. It literally means change your mind. Yeah. Think about your thinking. And once I figured out that the statements of faith that I was adhering to couldn't see the spirit of God in a child, I mean, that's a, that's a time to think about my thinking moment. Yeah. (laughs) And Jesus calls us to turn around and face into a new direction. Conversion, it doesn't actually mean converting to a new religious paradigm. It actually means having a conversion of your heart, having a transformation of your heart that you would start to see that God is so much bigger than what any one religion can ever hold. Yeah. That God is the God of the desert. God is the God that sees those you consider to be outsiders. Yeah. Repent. Metanoiate. Think about your thinking. Yeah. That it's not about regret or guilt or shame, but it's really just implying that we would make a decision and walk in that new direction. Right. And so that's what you and I, Shaleen, are trying to do is say, hey, we want to walk in this direction that says yeah. that Jesus is nonviolent and loves all of humanity and is has unconditional love for all of hum- humankind. And that's the yeah. direction we want to walk towards anchored to that. Yeah. Um, Jesus is the word of God. Jesus yeah. is the logos, the logic of God. Go read Brian, uh, Brian's on sinners in the hands of a loving God, that Jesus is the word of God. Jesus is life, death and resurrection. And Jesus sees the spirit of God in the outsider. If you're going to follow the way of Jesus, it's actually about leaving the institutions yeah. and it's about living with people. It's about caring for people. If it doesn't look like good news, feel like good news and smell like good news, you all, it is not good news. And we're going to wrap up with Micah Bernays, beautiful spoken word poetry freak show Mm -hmm. uh, that as Holland and I have moved into a new paradigm that our, our counterparts of Christianity, that we hope that we hope that Micah's vision of heaven, that Micah's prophetic imagination of what heaven will look like comes to fruition. That my hope is that heaven would be a freak show because I'm definitely a freak. So that would make sense for me. But we want you to listen to this song, listen yeah. to the words of this song. And as you move into the holidays, we want to leave you with some questions. We'll leave you with some questions to spark your curiosity. And the first question was this, this holiday season 
consider not blowing up your holiday dinners if you can avoid it. There's this beautiful saying, it says a smart woman learns from her own mistakes and a wise woman learns from the mistakes of others. So I don't know, maybe learn from my disaster of an Easter dinner. And if you can avoid it, maybe don't have the conversation on that night, but also don't avoid critically thinking about your faith either. So use wisdom. Mm. Is it a good conversation to have? Is it something you would like to have with the people around you? Or is this something that you'd like to work out on your own? Yeah. Well, I was going to say, I think there's an energy. Are you trying to fight and prove? Or are you genuinely seeking liberation and compassion yeah. <laughs> with the love of God? You know, I think yeah. that can be the marker for that. Yeah. And our next question is, how does this episode sit with you? What are you feeling right now? Yeah. Are you uncomfortable? Are you angry? Do you feel seen? Do you feel heard? Just there's no judgment. Just I think it'd be really good to sit. What's going on in your body? What are you feeling right now? Yeah. And what does faith seeking understanding look like for you? Yeah. Again, what does it look like? I love that. And what stories are coming up for you? These are part of my awakening stories. We would love to know, or you just to write for yourself that what what awakening stories are coming up for you? Mm Mm-hmm. And then what questions do you have from this? You know, like what questions are rising up and does your heart beat when you think of those questions? Do you get mad, sad, or glad? (laughs) Pay attention to that. And I just want to thank you for staying with us. And Shillian, thank you for sharing. Thank you. I know this matters. I want to leave off with this. It does matter and it's hard. So you all, if you claim Christianity, you, I encourage you, I implore you, what kind of Christian are you going to be? Are you going to be like the senior pastors of the world who cannot see the spirit of God in a child? Or are you going to be the kind of Christian, the kind of follower of Jesus that can see the spirit of God in all humankind? You get to choose. Mm -hmm. We love you. Go be Be free, free, flourish. flourish. Some drunk poet was singing of God and his mercies, quietly sipping his gin, painting a picture of words from a portrait of Jesus becoming again. Oh, sing, oh Lord, oh grace. And all sing, O Lord, O Grace. Never dismiss the visions of madmen. Wisdom can be gathered from anyone who sees what others cannot. Drunk men tell no tales. Poets cannot lie. Poets cannot lie because we do not divide fact from fiction. There's often more truth in our fantasy worlds and metaphors than human courts where liars swear to speak honestly in the name of laws they break, in the name of gods they disobey. The prayers of the proud will never reach heaven, but God hears the slurred words of the stumbling prophets, and all will be cursed who mock them. It is not an easy task to plead with the world, to grieve for the world, especially since God often speaks through those most broken. The picture we paint in our minds is a far cry from the reality of heaven. When the saints go marching in, it will not be a parade of the almost perfect. God does not reserve grace for those who only need a little bit. The healthy are in no need of a doctor. The healer is for the sick. Heaven will be a freak show. Promiscuous young men will embrace the virgin priests who molested them, and their hearts will both be pure. How amazing is grace. The street corner preacher will be greeted by thousands of people she thought were not listening. Thank you for enduring the times we mocked you. Your sidewalk sermons are why we know God. 
How amazing is grace Aborted children will tuck the spotless robes of young women And say, hello mother, I'm so glad to finally meet you The former master will see the lashed back of his no longer slave And say, you taught me the love of the savior the suicide bomber who prayed for forgiveness during the millisecond between pressing the detonator and standing before the throne of God. The guilty thief hanging next to Jesus on the cross. The madman who spoke to invisible beings will stand between Michael and Gabriel with a grin as wide as an angel's wingspan and say, I knew I wasn't crazy. The missus and the mistress, the victim and the rapist, the foreign and the racist, the bullies and the geeks. All those who somewhere along the way believed, whose sins were forgiven and strength was given to love their enemies. So many we swore there is no way in hell we would see them in heaven. They will be there. We will be there. With a song on our lips and our eyes full of faith. And we'll sing how amazing this grace. Some drunk poet was singing of God and his mercies. Quietly sipping his gin. And here's how I want to end. At the end of this podcast, here is my clear declaration that when it comes to the family of God, there are no outsiders. And we need to reform any statement and any doctrine that declares otherwise. In the spirit of transformation, Holland and I reserve the right to evolve. We reserve the right to change our minds and to make many, many, many mistakes. For resources discussed in this podcast and more, head to our website at desertvoices.com. So if you want to get curious and get bold, connect with us on social media and keep listening. Until then, go, be free, flourish. <laughs>